Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's actually my first time back preaching since, well, before lockdown. So it's, it's nice to not have to, like, unmute myself, make sure my camera's good and make sure my background doesn't have all my rubbish in it. It looks pretty clean back there. We're good, we're good. It's good to be back with you in person. It's good to be up here uh, preaching in person. But I still need God's strength, so how about I pray? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that as we approach Christmas and we in particular celebrate his birth, we can celebrate your plan for salvation. Father, I pray that as we look at Luke chapter 2 today, that you would give us fresh eyes to see just the wonder and the glory of the birth of this little boy. Help us to see with fresh eyes um, just how important and impactful it is for all of humanity and in our own lives. Father, today help me to speak clearly and truthfully so that your gospel might go out. I pray that your spirit would even now be at work in all of us, preparing our hearts for your word so that we might be transformed and made more like this little baby boy who served you with his life. Amen. Putting Christmas aside for a second, well actually maybe not, let's put Christmas back in the centre. Beetlejuice is one of the brightest stars in the night sky. And you know, the, the star, it probably wasn't Beetlejuice. The Beetlejuice is one of the brightest stars in the night sky. It's part of the Orion constellation. Uh, if you look up in the sky and you know constellations, it's, it's not on Orion's belt, it's like his top shoulder. And, and lots of people recognise Beetlejuice because it's just easy to spot, right? It's, it's super, super bright. It's, it's a red giant, which means it's hundreds of times more massive than our sun. It burns uh, a little bit cooler, but it'll burn a lot faster. So in the next 100,000 years, scientists think it's going to explode. Two years ago, it grew dim. And scientists are like, what's, what's going on? What, why this super bright star, why, why is it going so dim? And they're scratching their heads, they're trying to figure it out. They think, oh, maybe it's ready to go... Maybe it's going to explode, and it's not just a tiny little explosion. Scientists reckon that if we were within 50 light years of this star, we would be kaput. That's how big the explosion's going to be. It's going to uh, consume everything within 50 light years of itself. Obviously, it'll take some time to get out there. But they, they were like, oh man, this is going to be the, the most awesome thing that we'll get to see since I think the last supernova that scientists saw was in the 1600s. So they were gearing up, they were getting really excited, but they were still trying to figure out, is it going supernova or is it something else? And, and they were in this, like, they were worked up in this tizzy, they, they were, there was this frenzy about it, and, and researching, they found out that the star had just done a burp, right? What had happened is some cool gas had just kind of come to the surface of the star and burped out this cloud that just kind of obscured the star a little bit, so it grew a little bit dim, and that was it. They were so excited for this huge, massive explosion that you'd be able to see in the daytime sky for weeks on end, and it's just a little bit. You know, when you, you think something's going to be incredible, and it just turns out to be mundane? It's so disappointing, isn't it? But the flip side is true, right? When something that looks really mundane actually turns out to be really, really incredible, I, I uh, stumbled across some videos on YouTube, because I had nothing better to do this week, 
of, of these people, they were finding these rocks. They're just rocks. They look like any other rock. I don't know how they tell them apart from any other rock. But they'd find these rocks uh, and they'd get a hammer and they'd give it a few cracks and they'd open it up and there'd be all these crystals inside. Just a boring looking rock. Like I couldn't tell it apart from any other rock they could pick up. But inside were these amazing crystal structures and all these different colours and it was amazing. It was really exciting to find something amazing in the mundane. Now as we approach Christmas, I think these are the two ways that people might Christmas. Not necessarily intentionally, but just because that's the way they approach Some, Christmas is such a wonderful time of year, it's a celebration, uh, they're very excited, they put up all the decorations, their house lights up the whole street, the whole neighbourhood, it's so co- covered in lights. There, there's lots of joy and fun and family and food, lots of decorating, feasts, giving gifts and getting gifts. It, it's a really exciting time except they've departed from Christmas and the only thing at the centre of Christmas for them is, yeah, I guess Jesus was born, but other than that, we've got the food and we've got the lights and we've got the Christmas tree and we've got the presents. They've got something amazing on the outside, but what's in the middle, they consider quite mundane. Yeah, maybe they go to church, but once church is over, that's when the celebration starts. That's the first way we might approach Christmas. The other way... It is to see what's mundane and through that see what's really amazing. And that's, that's how I hope to approach Christmas today. And I'll show you what, what I mean by seeing the mundane and through that seeing what's amazing. Seeing something extraordinary. Because Luke takes that perspective, I think. He looks at the mundaneness of this boy being born and through that he shows us the glory of God. So let's, let's get into it. First, we're going to start with the mundane, the birth of this little boy. Jesus' birth is a lowly birth. It's ordinary. In, in fact, it, it's kind of, it's less than ordinary. It's humble. There's nothing about it that's, that's particularly amazing or becoming of a king. Have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Make sure you have your Bibles open in front of you if you've got them. I'm going to keep referring to this passage Uh, And it'll be helpful for you to be able to look along uh, and make sure I'm not making this stuff up. So chapter 2, verse 1, Luke writes, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their hometown to register. Now, what's a little strange in these verses is the name-dropping. Why does Luke mention Caesar? He could have just said, you know, there there was a census and everyone had to go back to their hometown. And and if he wanted to nail it down historically, he could have just mentioned Quirinius. He didn't didn't even mention Caesar Augustus because there was was a number of censuses when Caesar was emperor. Why does he name drop Caesar here? It's it's a little odd. Imagine uh, uh, Luke's here today. He's just had a little baby, Sophia. Imagine if when he let us know of the birth of his daughter, he said, when Joe Biden was President of America and ScoMo was Prime Minister of Australia, my little daughter was born. That'd be a little strange, wouldn't it? It gives you a little background, but not the background that you'd hope for or expect. It's just kind of unnecessary. But Luke 
doesn't include any unnecessary words as he writes this account of Jesus' birth. He doesn't include anything that's not important to what he's trying to communicate to us. So the question is, why does he include Caesar's name? Well, I think the reason he includes Caesar's name is because he's drawing a power contrast. He starts this chapter by talking about the most powerful person in the world, the Emperor of Rome. In fact, he was so powerful that the Emperors of Rome were talked about as if they were God. They were deified. They were considered God. They were called sons of God, a title that Jesus himself would have. He's the most powerful man in the world. Anything he says happens. Any, any land he wants to conquer, it's conquered. He's the most powerful man in the world. And then Luke mentions Quirinius, certainly not the emperor, but as a regional governor, he's pretty important, right? So, so we start most powerful, another one, Quirinius. And then Joseph, not a particularly impressive man, but a free man. He has his own life and his own trade and uh, maybe even some property. So as a free man, and then we meet Mary, a pregnant, unmarried woman. Scandal. She, she's bound to Joseph, yes, but even that is a step down in power and then we meet an infant, a little baby. It's been uh, a year and three-ish months since my second son Luke was born, but I still remember holding him in my arm. He was tiny, absolutely tiny and, and I remember him feeling particularly tiny because being the second son, I obviously had another, I had Sam to compare him to who was two at the time and you know, picking up Sam's like, Woof, all right, and then picking up a new, newborn, I felt like I'd throw him up in the air. It was tiny, little, fragile. I obviously wouldn't throw him up in the air because it's so little, so fragile, so precious, so vulnerable, so powerless, needed completely Jess and I to look after him. Needed us almost constantly there. The only time we could leave was when he was like asleep asleep. Like, you know, that kind of milk coma that they get where they just don't wake up with any noise. That's the only break we could have. Otherwise, we had to be constantly watching him, caring for him, looking after him. That was Jesus. Completely vulnerable. As Luke mentions Caesar and Quirinius and Joseph and Mary and then Jesus, he's showing us just how lowly a little baby boy is just how little they are, how vulnerable they are, how powerless they are. In the eyes of the world, nothing. But not only that, Luke also goes to great lengths to tell us where Jesus was born. Backwater, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you can consider, it's like a little nowhere town in our back of New South Wales. It's kind of comparable. We've got Sydney here, the big city, that was Jerusalem back then. Jesus was born in Mudgee, Right? Yeah, there's some people there, but it's a backwater, right? It's not where you expect a king to be born. It did have a claim to fame, you know, long ago, that's where King David grew up. But that was a long time ago. Bethlehem was a backwater. Even Micah the prophet, whom uh, uh, Steve read for us earlier, recognised it. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, another name for Bethlehem, though you were small among the clans of Judah, Micah gets it, Bethlehem's a backwater. Jesus isn't born in the big city hospital. He's not born at RPA. He's born in a shed in an outback town in the middle of nowhere. And when he's born, there's no 
palace, so there's no pomp. He's born into poverty, complete poverty. They have nowhere to stay. That they maybe they rocked up to Bethlehem too late. Everyone's come into the town. All the inns are full, so they have they have no room in the inn. So they're staying with the animals. Maybe they're in a stable. Maybe they're in a cave. Maybe they're outside in a courtyard. We don't know. But imagine giving birth with not nurses and midwives to help, but cows and sheep and chickens. Imagine the smell. Nothing is clean. There's no one there to help. Mary has to swaddle Jesus herself, a a, a teenage mum, just given birth, figuring out how to swaddle a child. I had all the help in the world to help me figure out how to swaddle kids and I still couldn't figure it out. She's here alone doing it. And you can just imagine Joseph hastily cleaning out the feeding trough, because that's what a manger is, it's a feeding trough. He kind of maybe dusts the food away, gets some, some padding, some straw, some something to put in there, so that Jesus can sleep in a feeding trough. When my boys were born, we had these awesome little mobile cribs, right? They were on wheels, they were high enough that you didn't have to bend over. Uh, They they were clear, so you could just see straight in and see what your kid's doing and you could like motor them around and stuff. Jesus is in a feeding trough, dirty, probably some food in there, smells like animals. Jesus' birth is not impressive in any way. Yeah, imagine Caesar Augustus's birth. It would have been a very different kind of birth. But Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the whole entire cosmos, is asleep in a feeding trough. His birth is humble, it's lowly, it's mundane and it fulfills prophecy. Isaiah 53.2 says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing about Jesus' birth that makes us think king. There's nothing about those circumstances that makes us think, yes, I want to follow you. It's lowly, it's humble. Nothing in that birth would make you think, yeah, 2,000 years later, we're going to be celebrating this. But behind that humble, ordinary birth is something extraordinary. Behind Jesus' birth, we witness the glory of God. And that's my second point today. Jesus, his birth is lowly and humble, but behind it we see the entire glory of God. Again, about Bethlehem, I may have been somewhat misleading, yes, Bethlehem is a backwater, but its claim to fame is legitimate. Bethlehem, the king, the great king. That's why Luke goes to pains to make sure we know where Jesus is born. Look at verse 4 with me. So Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth, sorry, went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. David is kind of really emphasised here because Luke's drawing a line from King David all the way down to Jesus. King David grew up in Bethlehem. He was a in the fields near Bethlehem. And King David is the king to whom God promised an eternal kingdom. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, one of, your throne, one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. And I didn't finish reading all of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You may have realised this. I skipped out a little bit. Let me read the whole verse. 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You see, Bethlehem has this prophetic expectation. Yes, it's a backwater, but it's the backwater where the king will come from. Jesus is born in the town that the forever king will be born. And what happens outside the town is what's really amazing. Jesus is born in the town of prophetic expectation, but in the fields, perhaps the same fields where David shepherded, there are some other shepherds. They're watching their sheep at night, they're doing their job, when an angel appears, and surrounding the angel is the glory of God. And so the shepherds have the exact same response that everyone else has when they witness the glory of God. They freak out. They're terrified. But look at what the angel says in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. The angels have come to announce the birth of Jesus. Now, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, I can't think of many other places in the Bible where angels appear to announce the birth of a child. The children are foretold, so John the Baptist, uh, his birth is foretold by an angel and Jesus' birth was foretold by an angel to Mary. But where else in the Bible does an angel show up to say, hey, there's a kid being born? It just doesn't happen. And the whole glory of God was there. Shepherds aren't kind of the first person you'd announce this kind of news to. Shepherds were, they were considered a little bit dodgy, right? They'd move through the fields, they'd move through towns, sometimes their fingers were a little sticky and they'd leave with a, a little bit more stuff than they arrived with. They, um, because they lived out in the fields, they really found it hard to be, keep ritualistically clean, so they were considered kind of dirty, kind of dodgy, stay in the countryside please, we don't want you in the city. But it's to these people that the angels came. And I think there's a few reasons why, but one that stood out to me is again from Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 verse 4 says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Why does the angels appear to shepherds? Because they're announcing the birth of the great shepherd. Jesus will shepherd his people. The way those shepherds cared for their flock... I don't know if those particular shepherds were dodgy or not, but they would have looked after their flock. They would have cared for them and loved them. They would have been the kind of shepherds that when the one got lost, they'd go searching for it. Well, it's to those shepherds that God announces the great shepherd is born. In verse 11, the angel says, Today in the town of David... A saviour has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The saviour, the Messiah, the Lord. Each individual one of those titles is massive for Israel. 
Each of them come with their own huge expectations about what that person would be and what that person would do. And here the angel puts them all together in one little baby boy. Let's look at each of them individually. Jesus is the saviour. Jesus has come to take away the sin of the world, to face the wrath of the Father so that we don't have to. He saves us from condemnation and hell by taking the punishment that we deserve. And He brings peace, peace between humanity and God. He is the saviour of the world. Without Him, we are dead. This child is the saviour. But He's also the Messiah. Now, if you don't know, Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. In Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in, the same word is Christ. Jesus Christ is the same as Jesus the Messiah. It's a title. It means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, people were anointed for particular roles. The three most common ones were kings, they were anointed with oil. You might remember Saul being anointed with oil and King David being anointed with oil by Samuel. Priests were anointed for their role and even Elisha the prophet was anointed to be a prophet of God. And the Old Testament, it it looks forward to someone special, a specially anointed one, not just a Messiah, not just a Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom God promised would come and fill these roles. And the angel announces that the long-awaited Messiah has been born in Bethlehem today. A saviour has been born, will save humanity. The Messiah has been born, the King. And this child is also Lord. Another fun word background. The the word Lord uh, in, in our English Bibles, in the Old Testament, translates the word Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. Uh, But what Hebrew scholars would do is they'd put that word Adonai where Yahweh was for fear of speaking God's name in vain, that they swapped it out out of reverence. And so in the Old Testament, when it says the Lord, you can read God's name there, Yahweh. And so these words kind of became synonymous. When you're talking about the Lord, you're talking about the name of our Heavenly Father. Or, or, Or we're talking about God, right? And so here, in the New Testament, the Lord doesn't always mean Yahweh, doesn't always mean God. But here in this context, Luke is certainly taking those expectations about God and placing them in this child. Luke is hinting that Jesus is God. In other accounts, he gets called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm just teaching you so many words today, aren't I? God has become a man... And he has lived with humanity. This little child, this baby boy, crying, puking, pooping, hopefully sleeping for Mary's sake, is God in the flesh, is the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity created the world and upholds the world and is an infant. That is astonishing. And so these three descriptions that the angel uses of this baby boy show us the significance of this child. Saviour, Messiah and Lord. Jesus isn't just another infant. 
He's the king of the universe. He's God himself. Let me pause here for a sec. We've peeked behind the ordinary birth of Jesus, right? We've got, we've got the ordinary looking rock, we've tapped it with a hammer, we've opened it up and we've seen crystals. In fact, we've seen diamonds. If you're here with us today and you're, you're still checking out Jesus and, and you don't know what to make of him, you're not even sure if this is true or not, can I just say I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're uh, checking this stuff out. If, if this does turn out to be true, it is life-changing news. Jesus is King and Saviour and God. That has to change our lives, right? And if it turns out to be false, at least you've checked. At least you can be certain and you know. What I want to say to you today is, this is true. Luke has mentioned historical people, Caesar and Quirinius. He's nailed this down in history. And, and there's stacks of other evidence that shows that Jesus was a real person who, who was executed by the Romans. And, and there's even evidence that suggests that he came back to life and really did rise from the grave. I think this Jesus that Luke describes is historically accurate and is the Lord of the universe. And so today I want to say to you, come to Jesus Come to Jesus who grew up to save the world. He has taken God's anger at our rebellion on Himself, taken the punishment that we deserve on Himself for you. So come to Him today and be saved. Christmas time is the best time to come to Jesus. Well, any time's the best time, right? But Christmas time, we're celebrating Jesus coming to save. So why not put your trust in Jesus and be saved? But if you're still not convinced, that's fine. I don't expect me standing up here for 20 minutes to convince you in one go, right? But keep coming back, keep exploring. In January, we're starting the summer series. Uh, uh, at church here in around August, September, we went out into the community and we asked everyone in the community that we knew, uh, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? We took the top four responses and we're speaking on the top four in January. Come back and hear, the, the, hear us talk about these questions from the Bible. The questions that you ask, your neighbours ask, your friends asked. Come and explore the answers that the Bible gives us. Keep checking him out, keep coming back, investigate, be certain of whether he is real and true and God or not. But let's, let's come back to Christmas, let's come back to this passage. Like I said, we've seen the dull rock, we've cracked it open and found diamonds behind it. We've seen the glory of God. The angel appeared, the glory shone out, and this child was shown to be who he really is. You know when you um, experience something awesome, you've seen a great movie, you've read an awesome book, you've been to a, a restaurant and they just have the best food ever, and you just got to tell people about it. You, if you have to bottle it up, if, if people don't want to hear about it, you just kind of, your insides are trying to burst out, right? And you kind of annoy people, so you just keep talking about it so much. A couple of years ago, I read this audio book, well, I didn't read, I listened to an audio book about sleep and it was a great book, it was entertaining, I know sleep might be a boring subject, but it kind of really helped me understand how sleep fits into being a balanced, healthy person, right? And I was just telling everyone about it. I was like, did you know sleep? It's amazing, you've got to have it, it's really good for you, it's like even more important than exercise and diet, blah, blah, blah. And people were just like, oh, shut up, Tim. I've heard enough. You said this about a thousand times before. People are like, no, that, that can't be true, Tim. I'm like, oh, well, that's not, the book said it, not me. I mean, I told you, but yeah, it's the book. 
That is the kind of response that this news should demand from us. To just speak about it. To, to feel like if we have to bottle it up, we're going to explode. And that's the response we should have because that's the response heaven had at the news of this birth. Once the angel told the shepherds what was going on, go, go to uh, Bethlehem, find the baby lying in a manger. What happened? Well, verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. When this, when this child's birth was announced, angels just burst forth. It says a great company of heavenly hosts, that's army language, right? We're talking thousands upon thousands of these angel soldiers have come, not to declare war, but to declare peace on earth. They're just singing praise and glory to God because He has sent this child to be born. And that is the response we ought to have when we come to Jesus, when we see Him for who He really is, not just a small vulnerable infant, but the God of the universe. Heaven couldn't contain itself, it just burst out. Is that the same for us? Is that our response to Jesus? Are we just overflowing with praise? There are two areas of praise that that I want to touch on, right? There's more that we could touch on, but there's two areas of praise that I think this really speaks to us. And the first is singing. It was great to sing some carols today. I, I, really, I was really excited that, you know, we're, we're doing Christmas sermon, we're so close to Christmas, we're going to be singing carols. I was really excited when I was walking up into church and, and heard the band practicing the carols. I was like singing along in the car park uh, and thankfully no one could hear me because if they did, um, that would probably discourage them. But when I'm in the crowd here and I'm singing with you guys, I just love it. I feel like I can't contain the praise that's bursting forth. But here's the problem. Sometimes I feel like I might be one of only a few here in this building that can't contain it. Sometimes I feel like here we really struggle to sing. Now, I think there's probably a few reasons for it. But we as a church sometimes can be quiet. Sometimes it feels like we we haven't really grasp just how wonderful the gospel is and it's not bursting forth from our hearts and from our mouths. And I know it's difficult, we've got masks on and things like that and that does make it difficult. But if you feel like that's you, yes, I I don't feel like it's bursting forth from my heart. Can I offer two reasons why and how you might change? Reason number one is, well, maybe you haven't really grasped just how wonderful the gospel is, just how wonderful the birth of this child is, just how wonderful Christmas is. Because unless we really see just how extraordinary this is, well, why would we talk about it? If I go see a boring movie or go to a so-so restaurant, I'm not going to be going, check out this restaurant, the pork was there. I'm not going to do that. Has the gospel gripped your heart such that you just can't help but explode with it? Maybe you, haven't, maybe you haven't even fully grasped what your salvation is. If you've really been uh, saved from death to life, there, there has to be a heart change there. A change that is, at the very least, thankful to God for your salvation. If you're not moved by the wisdom of God in His salvation, 
If you're not moved by God's love in the gospel, if Christmas doesn't kind of heighten your desire to shout praise, maybe you haven't quite caught the gospel. And so you need to become a student of it and immerse yourself in it. Hear God's words to you so that you might be reminded of His goodness and His glory and pray that He would shape and change your heart such that it couldn't contain the praise coming from you. The gospel transforms our lives, which means it transforms our affections for God too. And if our affections haven't been transformed, there might be a problem there. But the second reason might be you've, you've got the gospel and it, and it does feel like it's bursting forth, but we live in a culture where wearing our emotions on our sleeves is mostly kind of odd. We're, we're kind of in a society where we hide it behind a kind of stoic face, an indifferent face. Maybe, maybe you want to praise and you want to sing, but you kind of feel strange being the loudest voice in the room. There is a culture, and I think that culture even has pervaded into this church where we hold back because we want to save face. We might need to repent of that. If that's you, you might need to, you might need to come before God and say, sorry God that I have held back the praise that you deserve. Even though my praise is only a fraction of what you deserve, even though if I gave everything, it's only a fraction of what you deserve, I'm sorry that I've held some of that back. And then, step out and wear your affections for God, for Christ, on your sleeve. Sing loud, sing proud, don't let it be held back. As we sing again, I'm sure we'll all be self-conscious about how loud we're singing. You might need to sing quietly and reflect in your heart and repent, right? So, uh, if if you're not singing loudly, I'm not sitting there judging you. And you're all wearing masks, so I'm not going to be able to tell anyway. But you might want to take a moment to think, what is holding me back from shouting praise? What is holding me back from glorifying the God who has sent His Son into this world to rescue me? To take the punishment I deserve? Who's the King and the Saviour and the Lord? That's the first area of praise. Second area, final area, and then we're done, is Christmas. We're approaching Christmas. It's a good time to talk about Christmas. This passage is a Christmas passage. Is Christmas primarily about worshipping God for you? Because here's the problem. It is so easy for praise to become secondary. It is every fibre of our culture and society just pulls Jesus away from Christmas for us. And we're products of the world we've grown up in, so sometimes we struggle to see it. But is Christmas primarily about praise for you? Or do you just go to church on Christmas Day and as soon as church is done, boom, celebrations begin. You're with family, you're having all that fun and stuff. As good as that stuff is, that needs to be secondary to worship and praise of God. At Christmas, we celebrate our Saviour coming into the world. So what can you do to make sure... Praise is primary this Christmas. Maybe uh, there, there are Advent calendars that aren't just chockies in, in a box, but they're, they're devotions, daily devotions about Jesus. Jess, Jess got one uh, a few years ago, which we use every year, which is uh, a different title for Jesus each day until the final day we get to Jesus. And, and each day I've been able to, uh, Sam will flip it over, we'll read the name, Bread of Life, 
Word of God, Emmanuel, Messiah, and I'll talk to him about it. Emmanuel means God with us because, you know, in the Old Testament, God could only live in the temple and, and people couldn't go be with God because if they did, they'd just die. But now in Jesus, God has come to be with us. Isn't that amazing? Take the time to reflect on the Christmas story. Maybe it's not an Advent calendar, you just download a devotional series on Christmas. Christmas Day, when you're having Christmas lunch, what's your conversation about? Yes, it's good to catch up with family and talk about their lives and, you know, celebrate all that stuff with them. But is Jesus also part of that conversation? Are you celebrating our Saviour coming there? What can you do to make praise at the centre of Christmas this year? We've seen that Jesus' birth is mundane and humble and lowly, but behind that is all the glory of God, the birth of the Saviour, the Messiah and the Lord. Is that bursting out of you? How about I pray that it would be? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for Luke chapter 2 and, and the way he's so carefully crafted his account to show us that behind this lowly child is all your glory. Father, would you please grip our hearts with just how astounding it is that your son would become a man, a child, that he would grow up to die for our sake so that we might have peace with you. Father, would you so grip our hearts that it would be bursting with praise, that we couldn't hold it back and if we did, we would be dying inside. Father, as we approach Christmas, help us to think, how might we praise you this Christmas? Amen.